you've got a Bible, open up to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be there today. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, trying to find 1 John, uh, you can go to the back of your Bible and then flip back to the left a few books and you'll find it, find it there. Uh, if you're just jumping in with us today, uh, this fall we've chosen to work line by line through the book of 1 John. Uh, we love working through books of the Bible here as a church. You're going to find us doing that often if you're a guest and kind of wondering about our preaching. We love preaching through books of the Bible uh, because it helps us anchor in God's Word uh, and it puts God's Word on display in front and center in our church. We want to be about that, not, not our own opinions. And so the reason we chose First John this semester to work through is because we live in a current cultural moment where there are a lot of voices that are claiming to be Christian. There are a lot of people who are claiming to represent Jesus and to be honest that's only made matters more confusing. And, and, and honestly, too, it's made what it means to be truly Christian less clear, right? And so the reason we've chosen 1 John as a book to work through is because what John's going to do in the Apostle John, what he's going to do in this book is he's going to clearly outline for us, plainly outline for us, what is true Christianity? Cut out the voices, cut out all the, uh, the, the, the pundits. What is true Christianity? And what does it look like to be genuinely transformed by the love of God? That's what's going on in 1 John. We want to take that seriously and be genuine Christians, right? And so where we are today, we're going to jump into 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 14. Um, And I just want to be honest with you out of the gate, where this text is going to take us today. John is going to be very direct about what real Christianity is. He's going to be very direct. In in some ways, he's, he's not going to pull any punches, And so if we leave today uh, feeling a bit confronted, if you leave today feeling a bit stung by God's word, then we're doing it right. Then then we're doing it right. Then we're reading this text the right way. So I just wanted to kind of warn you where this text is going. It's not something that's going to expose you and leave you there. It's kind of one of those pastoral, prophetic, warm hugs to say, this is true Christianity. Join Jesus because there's freedom there, right? There's freedom there. So here's how I want us to begin this morning. I want us to read this text in its entirety, and then I'll pray, and then we'll move forward from there. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. The word of Jesus speaks to us like this. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him or whoever says he lives in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved. I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word in which you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray together. God, this is your word to us. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to explain this word to us. We invite you now to, as the scriptures say, lead us into truth. Bear witness of Jesus to us. King Jesus, shape us as your people. This is your word. We are your church. You are our king. Have us now. In your strong name, we pray to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Well, a few years ago, there was a story that went viral on Facebook. Uh, maybe you heard it. It was a story that went viral on Facebook and, and other media outlets, so it, it can be trusted also, I think. Um, but it was a story of a man in the UK, uh, not from Liverpool, I don't think, but a story of a man in the UK who uh, woke up one morning for breakfast, cooked himself from food, and he put some bread in the toaster. And after 30 seconds or so, his bread comes out of the toaster. He gets his toast out of the toaster, puts it on his plate, He looks down, maybe you remember the story, he looks down and there on his toast, crusted from the parts that are toasted around the parts that aren't toasted, he sees the face of Jesus, he thinks. There in his toast, the face of our king. And this was a big deal for him. He put this thing in a little plastic baggie. You don't eat toast like that. He put this thing in a plastic bag. He, he went to work that day. He's showing everyone the face of Jesus on my toast. As the story reads, <laughs> no one saw what he saw. No one was seeing what he was seeing. In fact, one of the funny parts of the story, the only person who remotely kind of saw a face was his roommate, his flatmate. And he said, ah, it's not Jesus I see. Looks more like the old British rock star, Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, that's Ozzy there on your bread. That, that's, that's Ozzy there on your bread. But the whole point for this guy and the toast, for him, seeing the face of Jesus there encrusted on that piece of bread was a sign from God that his faith was real and he shouldn't give up on God. He, that God was real and not to give up on his faith. And maybe you remember that story. Maybe you don't. But you probably heard stories like it of someone who is walking through a season of life not believing, struggling with doubt, grappling with all kinds of things. And then all of a sudden they have an experience. All of a sudden they have a vision, they see something and and whatever is in that experience, whatever's in that vision or whatever, maybe a near death experience, everything changes for them. Their life moves forward in faith. Their life moves forward in confidence because of something that happened, something they saw, something they experienced. There's books about this kind of stuff all the time. And I think the reason there's a popular level, experience, uh, popular level desire or interest for experiences like that and in stories like that is because believers want to be sure and they want to rest assured that what they've actually come to believe, what they've really come to believe is right and that it's real. You, you want to rest assured, you want to be reassured by something other than what you've come to know and go, is there any other external evidence that I'm not being fooled here, Right? Because you and I live in an information age, don't we? Everyone's fact-checking one another. Hashtag fake news, right? Everyone's always fact. The, the, the desire of our day is empirical data. Show me something I can verify. Show me something I can see that I cannot deny, and then I will believe you. But if you can't do that, then I don't trust you. But that's the desire of our age. So we want to be sure. And this is the challenge of the life of faith, isn't it? Because everyone in the room today, 
at one point or another, you've had this moment where you've wondered, is any of this even real? Is any, how can I know any, you've had that moment where you've, it would be so much easier if Jesus would just show up for a moment that I could see him for a moment, have some living room experience, maybe even toast. I'll take toast if that's what I can get my hands on. And then I'll know for sure. And then I'll believe. Like some of you have this doubt that you grapple with all the time and you want something else to assure you that what you've come to believe is really there. But for others of you, that, this, that maybe that's not your doubt. You're for sure about God. You believe God. You're sure on that point. But where you have struggles, where you have doubts, others of you in the room, it's that you doubt your salvation. You lack assurance and your security with Jesus. And this is, this is very common. I know I've been there. Several close to me, my family, my friends struggle with this often. Wrestling with your security, wrestling with your salvation in Jesus. You wonder sometimes if you've not sinned too much. If you've not gone too far. You wonder sometimes if you haven't done enough or haven't done it all the right way. And you worry sometimes, is there anything I could ever do? And you're always frantic. Is there anything I could ever do that would cause God to eject on me? And so for you, maybe you're not, your doubt isn't about God. You're sure about God, but where you lack assurance, where you want to be sure is in your security with Jesus. Every believer wants this. Every believer wants to know that what they're believing is real. And every believer wants to know that their faith is genuine. And this is exactly what's being addressed to us in the text today. The confidence of real faith. The assurance of genuine belief in Jesus. In fact, as we move forward in this letter of 1 John, it's the whole issue of assurance that he's writing this letter in the first place. That's the whole matter that John is writing about. He was writing to a group of confused Christians who wanted to know, have I got a hold of the real thing or am I counterfeit? But this is the struggle of the church that John was writing to. And so he's outlining for them genuine Christianity and the same is true for you and me. We live here in Oklahoma City, historically known as the buckle of the Bible Belt. We've breathed in Midwestern Bible Belt religion. We've all breathed this air. And so all around you, there are people who are trying to come in and define what Christianity is, right? Some are going to say that this whole thing is just about a moral code. You just do the right things, believe the right things, don't do the wrong things, don't believe the wrong things, be a good person and you're in. There's others that are going to say, no, 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 Christianity, really what Christianity is, if you just keep showing up to church, if you just have regular church attendance, then, then you're obviously in. You show up in a place that, believe, so you're in if you just have regular church attendance. Other people are going to say, no, 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 what this whole thing is about is just believing something in order to feel better about yourself and relieve your fear of hell. That's all this is. Just believe something and Jesus to feel better about yourself and relieve the fear of hell. There's others that are going to say, no, 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 it's, it's really just believing something in order to get God on your side and have him there like a lucky rabbit's foot to pull off the shelf when the times get hard. That really it's just believing something to, to help you out of tough spots in life. And, and you know these thoughts. You know these voices. You, maybe you have these own opinions yourself. This is what Christianity is. This may be why you're here today. But you go, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different thoughts about this. Which, which is right? How can I know what's sure? And so what you and I need is we need for someone to break through all the noise and just outline for us very plainly what is true Christian. Who is the real Jesus and what does real life with him look like? Welcome to the book of 1 John. 
Welcome to the book of 1 John. And so today what John's gonna do is he's gonna unroll for us two marks, two tests of real Christianity. As we roll through the book, there's gonna be more marks, more tests, but today we get just two. And as we jump into them, I wanna give you a forecast of where we're headed. In verses three through six, John is gonna tell us that real Christianity is obedience to Jesus. The first mark of true Christianity is obedience to Jesus. And then in verses nine through 11, the second mark of genuine Christianity is love for the church. So this is where we're headed. Let's pick back up in verse three and he gives us the obedience test. Look at verses three through six. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him must also walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, so this is a difficult text. This is a difficult text and not because it's difficult to understand. There are some of those passages in the Bible. This is not one of them. The message of this text is very, very clear. Evidence that you know Jesus is obedience to Jesus. Really simple. What makes this text difficult is that he leaves no room for you and I to budge out from underneath it. There's no room to budge. And here's what, because of what he's calling out here, because of what he's exposing as inconsistencies, at least I know in me, my initial reaction is to want to budge. (laughs) I want to read this text again and almost try to find a loophole, you know? Oh, there's an asterisk here. there's There's a little nuance. He didn't really mean it that way. I want to negotiate under this text because he's very plain in what he says. Look again at verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You see the sting. You see, so this is a wildly unpopular statement in our present culture where we're hyper-individualized and we're resistant to authority and we're skeptical of authority. Who are you to tell me my faith isn't valid? Who are you to call me a liar? You don't know my faith. I believe in Jesus. This is a hard text to sit in, even in a church like ours. We preach the grace of Jesus strong and with conviction all the time. Because you almost read this text and it can kind of catch you in a way where it has the the sound, it has the sniff of that old law-driven, that old rule-keeping religion that many of us have run from, and rightly so. That old law-driven, rule-keeping religion that's just moral policing that has hurt many of us. It has a sniff of that if you're not careful. But listen, in no way is this text trying to point you and I toward law-keeping religion. It's not doing that. Also, it's not pointing us away from the grace of Jesus to love you right where you are today. It's doing neither of those things. In fact, it's also important to note that this text is not calling out a kind of perfectionism in us. When John says, if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar, he's not calling for perfectionism. And we know this because of the verses we read last week, the verses that immediately precede this. He says, if any of you do sin, so he's acknowledging we will sin. 
If any of you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. You have one who pleads your case before God, Jesus the righteous, who made propitiation, who made atoning sacrifice, who paid the debt of your sin. So he's, he's not calling out perfectionism here. He recognized Jesus paid for our sins and he pleads our case before God. This is not perfectionism. But what John is doing is he's now saying in light of as a response to the marvelous, scandalous mercy of God to love you right where you are. This is our response to Jesus. Obey his commands. And so what John is doing here, listen to this. What John is doing is he's calling us to a real kind of Christianity where you and I acknowledge the absolute authority of Jesus as our sin-conquering, grace-giving Lord where you and I recognize a real kind of Christianity where we stop treating discipleship with Jesus like some sort of buffet line, where you and I pick and choose the kinds of things we want to add to our life and the other things that we'd rather just leave off. Real kind of Christianity is not a buffet with Jesus. It's the whole meal. It's the whole meal. And so he's calling us toward this. So let me say it this way. If you've really come to know Jesus, an evidence of really coming to know Jesus is that obedience follows. Obedience to him follows. Not out of duty. That's the old law-keeping, rule-driven kind of Christianity. Duty, do this or else he hates you. That's not what we're doing here. I respond out of delight because he loves me already right where I am today. And so knowing Jesus and obeying Jesus, it's two sides to the same coin. You hear that? It's two sides. They hold hands together. They spiral together. The more you know Jesus, his character, his perfections, his excellency, his kindness, the more you know Jesus, his wisdom, you want to obey him. And the more you obey him, you want to know him. They spiral together. Really knowing Jesus draws out obedience to Jesus. John 2 verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, so let's get really practical here. Let's bring this down sort of ground level and give a diagnostic to see where we are with this. When it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to desires that rage, when it comes to the way you spend your money, when it comes to the way you think about your money, when it it comes to the way you think about forgiving those who've hurt you, when it comes to the way you think about loving your enemies, when it comes to the way that you worry and that you chase anxiety, in any of these areas, and I feel attacked in my own life thinking about these questions, When it comes to any of these areas and the list could go on, here's the question. When what you want and what the word of God says are in conflict, who wins? When what you want in any area of life and what the word of God says are in conflict, Who wins? This is one of the greatest tests I know to see where Jesus reigns as king in your life. And listen here. 
I'm not suggesting that obedience to Jesus is always easy. Very often obeying Jesus here, though it's from delight, I love him, I want more of him, I delight in him, but sometimes obeying him is an absolute fight against old desires and old patterns of sin. It's an absolute fight, but I'm asking, is there any fight in you when it comes to loving Jesus? Is there any fight? I have to have more of him, or are you okay with status quo? And whatever I have with him, is whatever I have with him. I'm not looking for anything more. So do you see the test? The the kind of assurance of Christianity, the kind of assurance of faith, the kind of assurance of salvation that John is pointing out here goes well beyond what you say you believe. Anyone in the room can say anything about believing anything. It goes well beyond what you say you believe and shows evidence to life, what's really true, And it also goes well beyond some prayer you prayed back in the past of salvation. The kind of assurance John is dealing with here deals with the present posture of your heart today. That's the assurance John is drawing. What's the present posture of your heart today? When what you want and the word of God are at conflict, who wins? The obedience test, real Christianity. Because of what he has done, I say, yes, my king, what you say goes, your will be done. That's real Christianity. You have my life. So the first mark of genuine Christianity is obedience to Jesus. The second mark, the second mark, he moves from here to verses nine through 11 and it's love for the church. And here's what's interesting about the second mark of real Christianity. (laughs) He speaks just as plainly about this one as he does the first. He speaks, he, he leaves no words uh, up for confusion. There's no debate what John is saying here. Look at verse nine. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So when John uses the word brother here, he's specifically talking about other Christians. He's talking about the church, the people of God. And here's where this text gets a little bit tricky. Because I doubt anyone in here reads this and you start immediately thinking about, oh yeah, I do hate that guy across the room in the church. I do hate that guy. I better listen to what's going on here. Now, I doubt that's what's going on, right? But where that's maybe true in the room, I'd encourage you to listen to what John has to say here. But I think for most of us, we read this and we tend to think more highly of ourselves than being hateful people, don't we? And typically where you do feel hate in your heart towards someone, you typically feel justified in feeling that way because of something they've done. And so, and so you're not really running to go, hey, where where do I hate somebody? Because in your mind, you read this and you let yourself off the hook pretty quickly because you're gonna go, ah, I'm I'm good on this one. I have the the first mark is a little challenging. Second mark, I'm good on that one. I don't hate anybody. But that's not the point. That's not the point. Congratulations, you don't hate anybody, right? The point isn't what you're not doing. The point is, yes, that's one thing. But do you love the people of God? The point isn't what you do you love the people of God? Do you love the church? 
And I'm not talking about the organization. I'm not talking about the building. We have a great one. I'm not talking about the church staff. I'm not talking about church events. Do you love other Christians, the church? Do you love? Do you have care for? Do you have burden for? Do you have desire for? Do you have joy for? Do you have angst for the church? You see, love for one another is what Jesus says as the defining mark that makes us distinct to the world and what makes us recognizable as Christians. Love. This goes back to John chapter 13 in verses 33 and 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And so what Jesus is talking about here when he says love for the brothers it's not just a sentimental kind of love. Do you have chicken soup for the soul, you know, when you think about the church? It's not just sentiment. He's talking about real sacrificial, a kind of committed to stay, a kind of willingness to care and do the hard things. He's talking about a resolved, a gritty kind of, I will help you no matter what kind of love. A kind of love that sometimes will hurt to give out. He's talking about a love for one another like he's had for us. A kind of love where we commit to each other in the same way Jesus committed to us. That's profound. So you think about this room and you look around at people and Jesus is calling us to commit to each other. Real faces, real people like he's committed to us. Oh, church, that we would be that kind of place. This ought to be the most welcoming, hospitable place you go all week long. That we would love one another. You see, love like this will make us distinct. Love like this will make us what Jesus says, light and not darkness. Okay, so one of the real tests for how you know if this love is showing up in your life flies in the face of stuff that you and I hear all the time. So what do you mean? You hear people that will say things like, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Uh, I'll attend church. I'll attend church, but I don't need the church. I got my own thing going on. I'll attend church, kind of pick up my spiritual goods, but I don't really need the church. Or I, I follow Jesus, but I'm not interested in committing to the church. So you feel that, right? I, here's the thing. I know that statements like that, truth is, I just want to be compassionate on the front front end. Statements like that often come from the fact that you've been hurt by church people. Like you've had terrible experiences with church people. And so you're, you're ready. I love Jesus, but not, but not the other people that have kind of hurt me. Okay. So even with that in mind, I just want to point you to the scriptures for a second, because here's what John is laying out in real Christianity. The Bible doesn't know anything about a kind of Christianity that says, I love Jesus, but not his church. So you hear that, we hear that kind of thing. Even we say those kinds of things, but here's what, the Bible doesn't know that as Christianity. The Bible doesn't recognize that as genuinely following Jesus. Whatever that is, it's not what Jesus came to establish. Real love for Jesus will knit you to his people. 
as busted as we may be, as bruised as we may be, as covered in warts as we may be, real love for Jesus knits you to other sinners saved by him. It does. And this is what I love about the language John uses. When he uses the language brothers here, he's using it on purpose. It's not just some churchy slang that you use when you see someone in the hallway and you don't know their name. Hey, brother. Like he's not doing that here. He's using this language on purpose. And here's what I'm saying. Because as Christians, we really are family. Now we're a busted family, but we really are family. He, we confess together a common father, don't we? We confess together a common father. It's a common bloodline that actually unites us from the body of Jesus that was broken to win us here. A common bloodline unites us. And so as Christians, we really are family. We really are. Banged, busted, bruised, with weird aunts and uncles as we may have, we're family. We're family. And so where you see this evidence really expressing itself is in commitment to a local church. Like that's, that's where the, you cannot, exp, you cannot obey, you and I, we cannot obey what the Bible is saying here without a particular group of people that we're connected to where this love is expressed. And here's why I say that. Because it's really easy for you to say, yeah, I love the church when you're not committed to one. It's really, you, you can say, I love anything as long as you're not committed to it. Just ask anyone who's been in marriage for any longer than a year. You get in that kind of commitment and all of a sudden crazy starts coming out, right? It's, it's in the face of commitment. It's in the context of commitment. All the crazy starts rolling out and then you find out if you really have love. And so it's in that place where you go, I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. The crazy starts to rise among us and we get weird and we get... You know, all of our quirks come out, all of our sin comes out, and it's in the face of that that you and I still look at one another and we say, you are crazy, but I'm not going anywhere because that's exactly how Jesus looks at us. You are, but just so you know, Jesus says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm resolved to stay. So the question is, do you see the church as just some place to come on a Sunday morning to gather up your weekly spiritual goods? Or do you see the church as a people to connect your life to? Is the church just the next place to go and shop wherever the next podcast is, wherever the next uh, fancy show is, the next best show in town? I'm gonna hop around and kind of, is it just a place to kind of pick up your weekly spiritual goods, or is it a people, a particular people that you've connected your life to? So these are the two marks. So let's back off for a second. So John applies the gas pretty heavy, doesn't he? He outlines this very, very directly. We have these two marks, obedience to Jesus and love for the church. And if you're like me this week, as I prepared, this text got really heavy, really fast. Because all of a sudden, I started to see in my life all the areas where I don't obey Jesus like I wish I did. And I started to see in my life areas where, even as a pastor, I don't love the church like I, like I should, like she deserves, like you deserve. And so all of a sudden, this text, maybe you're with me, it feels really heavy. And stepping into the honest Christian life feels overwhelming and a little bit impossible. Where on earth do I begin? 
And so if you're feeling any of that this morning, this is why I love our last few verses in the text. Because what's going to happen in the last few verses, 12 through 14, is God's going to break in after applying the gas really heavy. He's going to break in. He's going to give a strong reminder to every one of us that there's no point of the Christian life where he's expecting you to carry it out on your own strength. There's no point of the Christian life where he's expecting you to prove yourself, but he's with you every step of the way to mark you out as genuine. And so in the last few verses, John's going to speak to the church like a family. He's going to do it with three groups, children, young men, and fathers. And when he speaks this way, he's not just speaking to men. He's bringing these in metaphorically to represent the different stages of maturity in the church. He's bringing in the whole life of the church. So he speaks first to children or specifically those who are new to Christianity. If you're a new Christian, if you're a new follower of Jesus, John speaks to you first and he says this, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. And I love this for his namesake. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake because you have come to know the father. So new Christian, you hear what is being lined out as real Christianity, but hear this reminder. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been released. With Jesus, there are no strings attached, new Christian. There's nothing to make up for. There's nothing to cover over. You have an advocate with Jesus. He pleads your case. He proudly represents you. And you're not on your own anymore. You have an ever-present father who's with you to help you. And so, new Christian, you've been released from your past sins to carry forward a life of obeying Jesus and loving his people and loving his people. He moves from speaking to new Christians, to those who are growing in their faith, to those who are learning to mature. He speaks to the young men. Look at what he says. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. To those of you who are growing in your faith, you've been around for a while and you're learning to mature. Listen to this. Though the enemy would seek to accuse you and seek to tempt you to run back to your old life, Jesus, your king, gets the last word over you. And Jesus, your king, gets the last word over your sin. He says, it's finished. And you've overcome the evil one. He's been defeated. And the word of God is yours. The word of God is yours to guide you and to lead you. And so you, growing Christian, you walk brave and you surrender big to obey your king and love his people. This is the life he's purchased for you. And the final group he speaks to in the room is those mature ones, those who've been around for years. He speaks to the fathers. Look at what he says. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. You mature ones. Receive this heritage of God's faithfulness that you've seen tested and true over the years. God has always been faithful and he won't stop now. God's always been true and that will never change. You mature ones, you've seen through the years and through trials, the rock of ages who never changes. And so hold true to this heritage and pass it down to the generations behind you. Love and obey Jesus and love his people. And so do you see this? Do you see this encouragement? John applies the gas and then he comes back around to go, no, but remember who you are as you carry this life out. 
You are those whose sins have been forgiven. You are those who've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know him who's from the beginning. You are a family together. You see Christianity, real Christianity. It's not about getting to God, but that God has come to us first. This is not about pulling your life together to get to God's side. No, 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 no. You and I, we carry out real Christianity, obeying Jesus, loving the church, because we've already been pulled to God's side in Jesus. That's why we care. This is the life we live now because we've already been pulled to God's side. You're forgiven. You've overcome the evil one. You know him who's from the beginning. You know the father. And this is how we know we've come to know him.